reason I wanted the lights up just a little bit is I, I, I want, uh, if you can join me in an exercise just to prove the point that I want to lead into for a moment. And if, um, if you can look along the road that you're in, what I'm needing to do is every third person stand up. So I can get an idea so of one third of the crowd. So every third person in a row, or one person in three, not you don't have to count them off. So one person in three. If you want to stand up, you, you can do that as well. Like it's actually not going to hurt my, 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 my point here. All right. You're a much better looking crowd than the, than the first service, but, you, but it'll still prove the point. Okay, so if you have a look at that number, that's the number, conservatively speaking, amongst people in Australia who are having persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Persistent. I mean, that's the, the residual strain they're un, under all the time. Okay, you can sit, it's not you, they're all going, no, not me, mate. I know, I know. It's everyone else out there, it's fine. But... Wait till we hear what the Christian stats are. That's an indication in any space, in any bus you get into, any train, any workplace, any church, that's how many people are battling with that reality of hopelessness and sadness. It's incredible and it's pervasive as well. At the moment in Australia as well, 9.3 with with an arrow up of Australians are actually experiencing depression right now, right now. If I did this crowd, this thing in the morning, in the evening, sorry, with the young, young adult crowd and, and youth, 25% of them, one in four, are not just having feelings of sadness, they are clinically depressed. Isn't that incredible? One in four. And that's twice what it was in 2017. So in six years, so we, we don't know what that is. COVID, it's unmeasured right now. They need to do the data and research on that. So Christians are obviously a lot better, hey? We, we, we're, we're powering. Well, apparently not. According to brand new data, so this is our current weeks old NCLS National Church Life Survey data, they're saying that Christians, 40%, not 37 like the rest of the world, this should be, uh, uh, 40% don't feel hopeful about their future. These are Christians who are saved place their faith in Christ, know they're going to heaven, 40% of them don't feel hopeful about their future. 30% have no sense of purpose. Now, join me in agreeing. That's a problem. That's That's not a cute stat to start a message. Sometimes we have issues that we manage. Sometimes we have problems we need to solve. That's a problem that has to be solved. How could Christians be less hopeful than non Christians? How could that possibly be? I don't know but I'll, I'll put a few pointers towards that way. We know it's not because times are harder than they used to be, although we, it's unknown about the effects of COVID. We have better health. We have better life expectancy, so it's not that. Australians, we're not in a war right now. There's war everywhere, but there always is. Um, we are more productive. We're more informed. We're more connected. Um, it's not about global instability because, to be honest, the, the, the world is always unstable. And during World War I and II uh, and the Spanish flu, all that period of life, these numbers were a fraction of what they are today. A fraction. I don't know whether, uh, whether you were brought up in the same year I was, but in the, uh, the 60s to the 80s, or, no, 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 sorry, the 80s to the 2000s is when I grew up. Um, no, but if you were there from the 60s to the 80s, you'll remember, if I said the, the term the big red button, you know what I'm talking about with fear. Because at any moment, it was completely imminent that some Russian or someone were going to press a button and it was all over as the missiles exchanged nations as they, as they crossed each other's path. Nowhere near at that moment of incredible anxiety 
with the numbers the same as they are today. Isn't that fascinating? We've got more career options, more benefits, more life choices. We can even apparently out there choose our gender uh, from moment to moment. But all these betterments and enlightened thinking seem to have only eroded the human soul, including church folk. Apparently, we just, this lack of clarity and, that, and purpose that we've striven to achieve has only worked against us. And the interesting correlation I find, and it's because I'm a church guy, is that the, the rise in hopelessness, which if I put a mathematical formula, it's an exponential growth. It looks like a, a cosec 2 curve, if anyone remembers the mathematics of that. It grows as it grows. Um, of uh, hopelessness correlates almost exactly with time and degree to a decline in the effectiveness of church discipleship and the numbers of churches in Australia. So it, so it does that. Looks like a fish, but the wrong way around. As hopelessness is going up, so interestingly, church attendance has one caused the other? We don't know. But it's, it's certainly an issue that we need to address within a church context uh, in Australia. And it's, it's not just a fun little let's get your attention and message thing. This is an issue, and it's, and it's accelerating. So we do need to intervene. In this, and it's been it's been weighing heavily on my soul for a, a fair while, um, uh, and and today's not going to fix it. But I but I want to start to speak into the idea because when I look at an issue like finding hope and knowing that at the end of the day that the sense of hopelessness out there is incredible, the, the church stats are somehow I feel connected. So in Australia, from 1990 to 2016, so 26 year period, is that 26 years? Yes, it is. Churches declined. The numbers of churches in Australia declined by 10 percent in 25 years, 26 years. In 2016 to 2022, another, another six years, they declined a further 10%. That's, the, that's that equal and opposite decline. As of 2023, 70% of churches are now in decline. And then predominantly the churches that are sort of under 100 because they're lacking that critical mass and they can't self-sustain. So we've been, we've been blessed here, uh, incredibly blessed. Or have we? Or have we? I feel incredibly blessed as the minister of what is a beautiful church with incredible people. I, I, I never not feel privileged and honoured to do that. But I was in a conference a couple of weeks ago with a guy called John Tyson, who was one of three incredibly heavy hitters from the international scene who could speak with a lot of authority into this topic. And he planted, he's an Australian guy from Adelaide, uh, he's very well known globally now. He planted a church in um, uh, church of the City, I think it's called, in New York, in Manhattan. And he ended up breaking out the 10 more church plants because church planting has proven to be, when it gets it right, the most effective form of evangelism. So he's done 10 of them. He knows, and he's cut it in New York, of all places. Um, if it's as blue as they get over there, you know. And he's done it anyway. But he wanted to do an assessment. He said, look, we've invested millions of dollars, tens of thousands of people have come, and, and, um, but how are we going? How many salvations have we had in our church and the data came back after all that time, he'd only had 47 salvations. And it just knocked the oxygen clean out of him. He said, this, for what should be the most fruitful enterprise, is the most fruitless enterprise we could have possibly done for the kingdom of God. What are we doing? And then he turned the mirror around away from himself onto guys like me, because we were, we were building full of black belt church planning maniacs, you know. We got it right. We're doing the stuff, you know. And he said, you guys, who's had a church where you've got more than 100 people in the first five years? So he went, let's have a look at what you've really done. He said, have they all gotten saved? 
Or are they just transferring from a different situation where they weren't as happy and they found a church where, they, where you've done it well and people have come? He said, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's true, there is not, all of us mostly here, that's our situation. For whatever reason, we've come from a different context. That migration was happening as people were looking for healthy churches. Thank God, hopefully you see this as a healthy church. Nothing wrong with that. You're welcome. Absolutely. But where are the unsaved people? Where are the salvations? Which is why we began. Doesn't mean I don't want to have all you come. I want more. Because we all need a healthy church. But what happened? What happened? Because when everyone comes, what do we talk about? What, what, who are we lobbying for? What programs are we creating to sustain for? It's not for the people who are out there. All this energy, I've got six full-time staff equivalent here now. We're hard at work. We all work over our hours. We work all frenetic. It's all great stuff, really good stuff. How much of it's getting the mission done? Am I responsible for the mission that Jesus gave me? Because he didn't tell me to start a church. He told me to make disciples. And this hopelessness thing is a discipleship issue. It's a hardcore discipleship issue. Are we building fans or followers? I'm responsible largely for what we focus on here. I'm not responsible for people's individual choices, but I'll bury myself trying to fix this thing. How do we do that? We can't take it as a, and don't take anything I say today as a personal criticism. It's a, it's a reflection who doesn't understand everyone's context. And my context is certainly not yours. I'm a, I'm a church maniac, I know that. Not everyone lives, we, we come here because we're good Christian folk doing life. So don't take anything personally. You're great people, but I look at a Sunday, and I, I look, we've we're got a good crowd, two services, we have a night thing going on, it's, it's lovely. Any other pastor I know would love to be, would love to be me. But I look at social media, and I, I recognise social media is social media, it's not spiritual media, it's not political media. But I, I, I see crowds of people who I know aren't here, and there's a rugby match on, and there's a soccer game going on, and there's a, there's a bribery island trip going on, and it's celebrated, and they're all there together, and why the heck aren't we in church celebrating how good God is? I don't mind people having a great time at a football match. Go hard. Nothing wrong with that. But do we have the same reflective proportional response to when Jesus works in someone's heart? Are we just as zealous about that? Are we fans or are we followers? Because the way Jesus describes discipleship, it's not that. Have a great holiday. God bless you. I wish I knew how to do that. I really do. I'm ordinary at that. But we've got to, we've got to self-assess just for a moment. Am I a fan or am I a follower? Is what Jesus described as followership, has it shifted? It hasn't. What does that look like in this context? Because the, the, if we weren't seeing the stats of hope being worse than the world, I wouldn't lose sleep over it. But now I am. This is the discipleship issue, which means it's my problem. And I've got to work hard to address this. Despite all that, and I sound like I'm miserable, but I'm actually not. I'm, I'm genuinely not. I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful. The worse things get, the better I feel. So I think now let's get down to business. Let's do, the, let's do kingdom. I hate playing church. I love doing kingdom. And there's a lot of kingdom talk going on right now. There's a lot of soul searching going on. There's a lot of people reflecting on this, not feeling guilty about it. That does nothing. No use feeling bad about it. That's useless. But if it forces us to make decisions about what we need to do, then we can do that. My job is to make Christians develop disciples who are full of faith, 
experiencing freedom, following Christ, living fruitfully. That's it. But I believe solving that issue will solve also for each of us here, at least, this hopelessness issue. It'll certainly go a long way towards it. So let me talk into, I want to disciple us for a few weeks on an experience of hope. Because I just, I agree with the stats. As I've been praying into this, I think, what is it that people really need the most? Because I'm not going to preach to negative angels here. I'm going to preach to our better angels. I'm preaching about hope here today. But, but a leader's first responsibility is to define reality. And the reality is we're not as hopeful as we could and should be. And we can fix that. But it's a discipleship issue. So let's have a look at what is hope. Because we don't lack faith in the core sense. We're lacking hope. And often because we don't understand what hope is. So let's have a look at what hope is, and, um, and hopefully you'll, get, you'll be able to get motivated by this. So there's four main issues that fuel hopelessness in our world. A sense of despair, a sense of it's not worth it sort of stuff. First one is fear. Fear. Because fear says, I'm not going to be able to sustain myself. I'm not going to make it if X or Y occurs. If I lose my job, if I lose my family, if my lo- all devastating things. But if those happen... If this thing that I'm hopeful for doesn't happen, I'm not going to be able to make it. I can't do it. I'm not a fearful guy, but, but I recognised after I'd gotten into ministry that fear was the reason I used not to get into ministry because I was fearing that I wouldn't be able to cope with the politics of church life. Turns out I can, only with God's help. And he spoke to me so clearly after I'd made the choice, don't ever make a decision based on what you fear. Don't let fear, because any, any decision based on fear is going to end up being the wrong decision eventually. You make it based on what God can provide. Fear, I can't get through this, life's too hard, why me? Second point is a sense of inadequacy, where I'm, I'm not going to make it, I'm weak, I'm, I'm feeling useless, I'm ashamed, uh, I'm, I'm unable to break through, I'm inadequate for life to become what it needs to be. I have a sense of insecurity and so on. It's just I'm, I'm inadequate for the task at hand. Number three is a lack of purpose. This is the reason why people lose hope. I don't know what to do. In, a, in an age where there's more choices before us than there's ever been in life, life used to make your choices for you. you you're, you're a son of a blacksmith or, you're, or a, you, you would become your father's business and so on. But now the choices are endless and somehow in that endlessness we found a lack of purpose because we just don't know what to do and everything looks the same as everything else. So it all basically equates to zero. Nothing really matters. So I lack that purpose. Number four is lack of value. And these can really feed into each other as well, I guess. My life is useless. It ha- why am I even here? I have no reason to live. If I die, no one cares. If I live, no one cares. Why, why breathe? Am I just taking up oxygen? Lack of value. These four reasons lead to a sense of it's all hopeless. Why would I do anything? And so we then deactivate our soul and we just, we just wander around somewhat aimlessly. And because there's a lack of clarity around this, people become what the Bible calls sick inside. Dis-ease, I could put it that way. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And I guess we need to own the reality that, and we're probably all guilty of it at some point, we've actually probably contributed to that. You know that Christian thing where you, where you see someone you love going through a very difficult time, and he goes, it's going to be fine, don't worry, God's going to fix this. And what we're saying often is that we're trying to make them feel better in the moment by saying, that's right, God, God's going to, he wouldn't let this happen, he's going to, just hang in there, God's going to make it better. But 
in the, the echo in the back of our head realises he never did promise that. Gee, I hope he does that. And, I, and often what we're doing is just prolonging sometimes an inevitable experience where God didn't do that because he never did promise to do that. He actually promised the opposite, that life's just always going to be pretty ordinary. It's going to bring us trouble. He promised us something deeper than circumstance. He promised a foundation of peace. And so in prolonging the disappointment, we magnify it. And then we produce a group of uh, Christians or, or, or fans, maybe we should say, of, who are disappointed and revert to a worldview that the best we can hope for is it's all in heaven one day and today is just going to be a horrible experience. So we hope for nothing because you won't be disappointed. It's a great, safe, miserable place to be. <laughs> Pessimism, we call that. Hope for nothing because then you won't ever be disappointed. And it's true uh, that any hope that's not based in God himself will possibly and probably at some point fail. But the Psalms say, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. So any true hope that's not based in God himself is, is shaky ground. If we're relying on, it may happen, you might, you might strike the winning card there, you know, you might get skimmed through life and somehow all the stuff that you fear doesn't come upon you. Some people experience that, not too many, but some get that. And then those who don't get resentful, why didn't it work out that way for me? Either way, it's, it's not what it's cracked up to be. The minute you rely on those circumstances, you're on shaky ground. But the things that Jesus gives us hope for are foundational, not circumstantial, right? So when he says, my peace, I leave you. The world's going to give you trouble. It's always going to be rocking and rolling. I give you something deeper than that. So he's promising a, a, a substantive peace that's greater than circumstantial trouble. That's his promise. So I can put my hope in his promise. So here's the big principle. Hope is not the same as faith. And I don't think we are too clear on that. Christians aren't clear on the difference between what we have faith in and what we can have hope in. And I'm been convinced after 20 years in ministry and 20 years before that of Christian life that many of the prayers that we pray that we would call a prayer of faith is actually a prayer of hope because faith and hope are fundamentally different in what they do and what they what they base themselves on so if I place my faith in faith place my faith in something place my faith in something that might not happen it's going to be unwise and unsafe so faith is a reliance on what we already have. So try and beat that one into your soul. If I have faith in something, it's not in something that I don't have. Hope is for what I don't yet have, but that which is available. So faith is a reliance on what I already have. Let's, let's tease this out because we need to get this pretty straight. So I have faith in my salvation. Why? Because Jesus died for me. He paid the price I couldn't pay for myself. It's done. It's already done. I don't only believe in it cognitively. I rely on the substance of that with my life. So if he fails, I fail. But how do I know he's done that? Well, the scriptures are clear because the spirit is in our heart. It says in Ephesians 1.13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I know I'm saved. Why? Because the Spirit swells in me and I know what he feels like. I haven't had an experience of God. Not all of us experience that the same way, but his Spirit is in me. I know he died for me. I base my eternity on it. I don't just believe it. I'm leaning on it absolutely, completely. Why? Because it's mine now. I'm saved now. Not one day. Now, I'm saved. You're saved. If you're not, 
If you're, if you're concerned about that, place your faith in what he's done for you. He's paid the price for your sin. He gives you free access to the Father by placing your faith in Christ. We have presence of the Spirit through the scripture I've just given you as well. We have the love of God. The love of God. I can place my faith in the fact that God is love. That he doesn't love me sometimes. He is love, so he can't not love. 1 John 4, 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. It's by faith. I live on it, I live from it. It's not just something I stand on, it's something I can jump from. So these things aren't things that we hope for that will exist one day. They are now. I have faith in them now. That's faith, okay? So that's why Ephesians 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance, the matter, the, the, the thing that I can grasp of what I hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, whereas hope is not the evidence of what's unseen yet. So faith has substance. Faith is concrete. The Greek word there for substance is hypostasis. It's a fantastic word. It's, it means a foundation, a support, concrete, if you like, a stage that I, that I can't break. I'm just not that big and bad. I can't do it. I, I support it by the foundation of what I have faith in. I have it. In an abstract sense, it means assurance. It's a thing you can be guaranteed to have. So we rely on Jesus' death. I live from his spirit. His presence confirms the promise. So hope, what we hope for, let's just be clear, we'll get to the hope stuff, is, is what I don't yet have in substance, but what I have by permission. So it's available, but it's not automatic. So I'm not, place, I'm not gonna place my faith in what the world, what I want necessarily, everything from the world. I'm gonna place my hope towards that which has already been promised, which is available, purchased as I was saved, available, but not automatic. For example, the great Christian hope of life with God in heaven. It's the great Christian hope. That's a term, Google it. It's to, it's a, really, it means heaven, living with God, dwelling with God one day, the great Christian hope. I'm not there yet, thank God, I've still got things to do here, but it's assured. It's sure, but I'm not there. It's available, but it's not automatic. So hope, Christian hope, true hope, hope that, you can, uh, that won't disappoint for a Christian is what's available, it's ours to own, whereas embracing it is optional. So Jesus gave us peace. It's, it's ours. He gave it to us. How many of you felt at peace all week? Not necessarily. It was available, but it wasn't automatic. But I can set my hope on it, and hope is not a passive, maybe, think thought like. It's, a, it's an activating, active trajectory. We aim ourselves, we set ourselves, and walk towards that which we hope for, because it's available. I, but it's my responsibility to embrace it. It's my responsibility to think as Jesus would have us think, to do and to act as he would have us act, to embrace that. So this is hope. An expectancy and a, and a desire for something, possibly for something to happen or for something like eternal life, and a sense that I posture myself towards it. If, I, um, if you don't hope for, for peace, you're never going to embrace it. If you just sit back, and this is where the pessimists even though it's a safe place to be, if I don't hope for anything, I won't be disappointed. That leads to the next thought, which says, if I don't hope for anything, it's not going to alter the outcome. Because what's my hope's got to do with it? Circumstances will be what circumstances will be. That's not the case here with Christian hope. It is with everything else, possibly, but not what Jesus offers us to hope in. Because if we hope for it, we aim for it, and we embrace it into our life. So what I do does matter. The way I think does matter. If I think negatively, if I think pessimistically, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to aim for it. I won't be able to embrace it. So yeah, it will make a difference. So hope matters. Hence the hopelessness 
in the modern church. Romans 8.23, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Now just recognize as I'm reading this, because I want to press into this whole idea of the groan, because the groan represents uh, the tension, the thing that we have a sense, the, the feeling of strain, and strain is the opposite to stress. Uh, that's an en- engineers will understand that. Stress is what comes against us, strain is what opposes it. And strain is a response to tension, okay? And tension creates movement. So there's something about groaning, tension, knowing what can be but what is not, that causes us to move. This is why hope becomes an active thing. So we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. In other words, if you've got it, you don't need hope because you've already got it. Who hopes for what they already have? But if, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit... What's the Spirit got to do with hope? This. In the same way as we wait expectantly, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. We're feeling the tension. We're groaning inside because our heart is made for peace. For example, peace, if that's our thing. But we haven't got it, so we're groaning and the Spirit's work in our life is to help us pray. He intercedes for us to lead us on that journey into what we hope for. We don't know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So we have faith for what we already have, hope for what is available, but not yet. And so prayer, you'll know this from your own prayer life, prayer is often an exercise, an experience of outworking hope. Prayer isn't a time where we moan and groan about how bad things are in our life. God knows that. Prayer, when the Spirit is helping us, recognises the tension and says, let's take us towards this thing that God's offered us, which is substantive, not circumstantial. So if it's Spirit-led, your prayers will be hopeful because the Spirit is the ultimate optimist. He's just never in a bad mood. The Spirit just high expectancy of what God can do. So what is it? Now we get to the topic. So what can we have hope for? Well, that's what's going to be peeled out in detail in coming weeks, but I'll just bounce off it a little bit now. So what are the, let's, let's reconcile it against the four hope killers. So there's fear, the sense that I, can't, I won't be able to get through this. Life's too hard. I won't be adequate. I won't make it. Jesus offers peace in the place of fear. Don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? Peace I give you. Peace I leave you. Peace. Shalom. It's okay. Regardless of what matters, I can have peace. Don't hope for the circumstances. It may or may not work. You can hope for peace and you can appropriate it. The sense of inadequacy, the second one. I'm weak, I'm useless, ashamed, unable to break through, I'm addicted, I'm insecure, all that stuff. He offers us a sense of not being ashamed. He offers us security in who we are. He makes us strong. He gives us his spirit of self-control, so I'm not, I don't have to be addicted. I don't just have to work harder at my faithfulness. I can live from fruitfulness. I live from him, not just for him. That's the promise, freedom. And yet I know the experience of freedom that we often have is temporary at best. But the offer there, the hope, can be complete freedom from anything. Lack of purpose was the third one. I don't know what to do, nothing really matters. He offers us, of all things in Christian life, purpose, a reason a reason to live, and not just a reason to live, he gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit to equip us to do the purpose that he's asked us to do. And we've been equipped for good works in Christ. Man, there is nothing more important than purpose to center one's mind. Hope is like an anchor for the soul, Hebrews says. It's like we anchor it and we draw ourselves inexorably towards this one thing. 
this thing that matters. Lack of value was the fourth one. My life is useless. I have no reason to live. No one cares and so on. He gives us this eternal identity uh, of significance, of value, but not just as an idea, as a way of impacting others. So we go beyond the idea of I have an influence in life. Oh, I'm, I'm famous. I know I'm known. All that kind of stuff. No, nothing to do with status. It's saying, no, I, I have legacy in my life and your life where I can impact people. So that's not necessarily what I, my legacy and impact is not what I do today. Probably not. I mean, there's however many people in the room. I may bring some influence, hopefully godly influence to life, but, but that's not as deep as impact. When I walk away, when I'm dead in 100 years, no one's gonna remember me, I'm fine with that. But what about impact? We can all have impact where we're printed in depth our, our print on someone else's soul. We can all do that. We all do that with our family, with our friends who are close to us, the one, two, the 10 people, maybe not more than that. You'll have as much impact in people's lives as I do. How much are you impressed on people's lives? That's value because that goes on for generation after generation. That's meaningful stuff. So they're the sorts of things that he promises. That's the hope to which we can aim because you weren't wired for a futile life, you weren't wired to, to, to sustain fear, but it begins with this partnership with the Spirit and recognising the very real tensions that we all feel to lose hope, the tensions you know, where we lose purpose and, and we have fear and so on, and the Spirit brings us inexorably home towards that. So we need the Lord to show us this, the Spirit himself, this, our brains, for a lot of us, especially if you're a left brain negative thinking, analytical type. There's a whole bunch of us here. Somebody rang the bell and all the introverts came home. You know, um, We tend not to naturally think that way. But that doesn't matter. We can be as hopeful as anyone else if we just learn to lean into the God's spirit, the eternal optimist. So where are our hopes? If we're disappointed, we've probably had our hopes in the wrong thing. Uh, if they're misplaced, we'll probably end up a bit miserable in the end. Maybe we've been hopeful for the wrong things in life. Maybe you've put your hopes in something that aren't what God's promised. Possessions, things working out, family, circumstance. When the storms of life come, and as I say, they don't come for everyone all the time, but we probably all know, we soon find out where our hope's based, don't we? The storms of life come and we find out what foundation we built ourselves on. Anything that's built on sand eventually is going to fall. And it doesn't mean, I'm not saying don't hope for good things. There's permission granted, absolutely. But we don't rest our life on that foundation. We only rest our lives on what is sure. We build our life through faith. We place our expectation on hope based on what is promised. But beyond that, the rest is optional. So when Paul looks at a church, and Ephesians was the great poster child of what it looks like when the church gets it right. Change their community on fire for God, faithful, could tell good and evil, the whole thing. Paul looks at that crew and, and goes, I invested years in you guys. It doesn't get any better than that. And for me, that's Kenmore Church. It's like, you guys are the best. I could not hope, honestly, for a, just a more admirable group of people. Faithful, generous, we do the stuff. Good for you, right? And he writes the letter and he, and, he just, and he says to them, given all that, as good as that is, here's what we need. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So the Spirit comes, opens up your eyes, that beyond all that good stuff, you would know the hope to which he's called you. What's that? The riches of his glorious inheritance. That you would see it. 
and his incomparably great power. That you would see this power. That you would place your hope in that. You go, man, I don't have that. I'm a good guy or girl. I'm doing the best I can. I'm faithful. But you mean there's power? How do I get that? How do I get more power of God working in my life? How many have aspirations to be more powerful in the spirit? I'm not going to get a show of hands on it. How many have aspirations for the peace of God? How many, how many long to be as joyful on a Sunday morning as you are when the Springboks win the World Cup? How many are that hopeful? Am I? I'm not pointing the finger because every finger out is three pointing back. It's sobering, isn't it? Am I a fan or am I a follower? Am I, am I just hanging around or am I a disciple? And as a, I'm supposed to be a disciple maker. So my prayer is Paul's prayer, that all of us would be, the Lord would open our eyes and say, you want to talk about normal Christian life? It's powerful. It's free. It's full of joy. It's the Holy Spirit working where anything can happen, and it probably will. We come to church and we just, no matter what's happening in our life, we can't lose for winning. We're just full of joy, happiness. I like that. Let's aim for that. So over the coming weeks, we're going to tease this out in a whole bunch of detail and just try and get to the core of it. Because even though we're good people, there's something sometimes got to miss that's led to hopelessness in our life or people that we know. So maybe we've placed our hope in the wrong thing uh, and we just need the Lord to speak into that. So why don't we just pray now as the band comes up and just give the Lord permission to, to, to bring us to life, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, the glorious, enriches, glorious riches of your inheritance here, not one day. Here. You know, in the old Hebrew way, when they talked about inheritance, it wasn't one day when dad dies. It was like when you hit a place of maturity, you get to do the family business with dad while he's still alive. And he teaches you and shows you, and you work with him. It's almost like a partnership. And Paul uses that terminology all, all the time. And he says, you are, You're not slaves anymore. You're sons and daughters, co heirs with Christ. How do you know? Because the Spirit's there. And the qualifier that puts us into this game of this glorious inheritance, which is here and now as well as to come, is the presence of the Spirit in our life. And in Christian worlds, we talk a lot. Guys like me, we never quite shut up, do we? It's all we do is talk. But it's not about talk. It's about power. It's about the Spirit doing what you can't do on your own, making you better than you can ever make yourself. That's the normal Christian experience. You can die as a martyr with a smile on your face. See you, Jesus. I'll be there soon. Let's pray together. Lord, we just, we long for that hope, a glimpse of that inheritance so we can set our anchor, tie our anchor to that because hope is an anchor for our soul that keeps us firm, it's sure, and we can pull ourselves in towards that anchor. We reel it in. The inheritance, the power, the freedom, the joy, the experience of true Christianity. We long for that. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to that. And Lord, I pray you'd open our eyes now to the things that we've placed our hope in that we've allowed to replace that. Hope that our spouse would be better than they are or hope for a pay rise or a better job. Hope for a house because I can't afford it. Hope for all these things to happen in my life. Probably good things but not the place for our hopes, our main hopes. We put our hope in you and what you promised us. Father, show us where we have misplaced hope. And Lord, we choose now to repent of that, 
not in a negative and judgmental way. Don't need that. Guilt's useless. Condemnation's of no purpose to us. We, we push that aside. No one's to leave here guilty. We just lift that office because the offer is not into judgment. The offer is to come to life. And so, Father, I want to release life. I want to see you bring us to life. That this group of people would be the most hopeful, joyful, powerful people in the city. Lord, take us on as we repent from placing our hopes in a misplaced way to our hope in you. Free us of the weight of disappointment. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. I hope you've, you've sensed my pastoral sort of heart in all that. I want us to see life. But if you need prayer for that, and I think a number of us will, as they, as they did in the first service, where our hopes have been dashed, it leaves scars. It leaves awful wounding. It leaves us pessimistic and not willing to try life again. We, have, we need to be released of the trauma of that. It sits there deep in our body, in our soul, in our spirit. Have the prayer team minister to that and lift it. It happened to me. I didn't even know I needed it. In an instant, God did what 20 years of hard discipleship couldn't do. I'd cleared my head. I was thinking straight. I just needed a spiritual renovation, and He did it in a moment. That can happen with you as well. Bless you. Let's have some worship and some ministry. Thanks, God.